There was a knock one morning, a man was standing at my door. He said, hello, I'm from Halliburton, have you heard of us before? We'd like to lease your backyard to drill for natural gas. It's called hydraulic fracturing, and it is the very past for a clean energy future above the Marcellus Stone. Plus, we'll give you lots of money and a new mobile phone. I said, you are a corporate crook. I don't believe the things you tell, and you can drive right off my property and then go straight to hell. No fracking way. No fracking way. Corporate salesmen, whatever they may say, no fracking way, no fracking way, no fracking way, no fracking way, no fracking way. Greetings and welcome to Frack You Very Much, a fracking terrible podcast. You can find back episodes and more at frackyouverymuch.com or follow FYVM show on Twitter. First story is from The Guardian at theguardian.com. This is written by James Cartwright. While the world applauds the child protesters taking to the streets, fewer eyes are on their mums and grandmothers whose activism is altogether quieter. In August 2014, gangs of older women in yellow tabards and headscarves started to become a common sight on Preston New Road in Lancashire. They called themselves the Nanas, though not all are grandmas. They took the name as a nod to trust, family, and tea, leaning into stereotypes of northern matriarchy. Their first project was to capture a field under planning application by Quadrilla a UK fossil fuel company seeking exploratory drilling rights for shale gas. They hopped over the fence, set up tents, and claimed squatters' rights, staying for three weeks. By the time they left, the Nanas had earned the support of 14,000 local residents and appointments at Manchester's High Court, and their action, along with that of other campaigners, led to Lancashire County Council rejecting Quadrilla's fracking application, a decision later overturned by then-Secretary of State Sajid Javid. In the years since, the Nanas have mounted an often good-humored war of attrition against Quadrilla, whose drilling has caused tremors in the area. At the Bellmouth, the entrance to the Preston New Road site, they, sang, they sing, dance, knit, pray, read poems and monologues, and obstruct fracking activity wherever possible. They even have their own stage show and samba band. And every Wednesday, dressed in white, they stage a call for calm at a site where tensions between protesters and police often erupt into violence. In November 2018, Quadrilla stopped drilling after multiple earth tremors, two of which breached the government's traffic light system that requires fracking to be paused in the event of seismic activity that exceeds a magnitude of 0.5. Fracking resumed on 15 August 2019, but activity was suspended 11 days later after the UK's largest fracking-induced seismic event. Two weeks ago, just a couple of days before the Nanas celebrated 1,000 days of activism at Preston New Road, 
Quadrilla announced that it would engage in no further fracking activity on the site before its license expires at the end of November. The Nanas are now free to enjoy a frack-free Christmas, though they remain on site to make sure. If you don't stand up and do something, then who else will? Angie Mosier, Nana Inappropriate. I've been an armchair activist for years. I'm a lesbian and in the early 80s, I'd done a bit of Section 28 business and got chased down my own street. But as the years went on, I stopped being as active. I'd see things and think, huh, isn't that dreadful? And hope someone else would do something about it. The earthquakes were the first time I heard about the Preston New Road site, and I lost a lot of sleep. I'd just adopted two small boys, and this was happening on my doorstep. Had I not become a mother, I probably wouldn't have looked into it any further. But I wanted to know exactly what was going on. It's about my kids and their future. I've got to protect them. At first, I researched both sides, the pros and cons, because you do tend to think that people who are protesting something might be a little extreme, a little bit nuts, and some are, but that's life. You look at a group of people, and there are always a couple of nutters. That's how the idea of the Nanas came about. A few of us wanted to engage the public without being threatening or aggressive. There's nothing more gentle and unthreatening than your Nana, and if your Nana tells you something, you listen, because Nanas know best. We took the old matriarchal image of Hilda Ogden, put on our yellow tabards and headscarves, armed ourselves with feather dusters and little teapots, and went to capture that field at daft o'clock in the morning. There are some moments in your life that stand out, and that's up there with one of the best of mine. Watching the sunrise after we'd done, I felt as though I was on the right side of history. I no longer cared if the police came and picked me up, because I knew I was doing the right thing. Quote, there's a ball of rage inside me, said Tina Rothery, Nana Queenie. I've lived in all sorts of countries and all sorts of income levels. I worked as a journalist in Hong Kong and managed pubs in London. I've lived the good life with a maid and a membership of the Yacht Club. And I've lived the harder life as a single parent rummaging for change down the back of the sofa. I'd always assumed I was fairly broad-minded and then I came to activism and realized I wasn't at all. Finding an army of women of a certain age was the biggest surprise. The realization that there was this untapped resource. We're cute. We're a bit broken. We're easily damaged. If the cops manhandle us, they're going to look awful for it. In the early days, we made such a difference so quickly. Within months, the campaign here grew and we built towers at the site and were sleeping in the entranceway blocking lorries and getting moved at least 10 times a day by the police. That was great. We knew we were having an impact. We've been here for more than 960 days now and everything we've done has included humor, but there's a ball of rage inside me. Every Wednesday when we do the call for calm, I generally put down the anger and think of it as a fresh start. We started Nana Samba as a kind of anger management for the Nanas. I took a drum and two sticks and I beat the hell out of it and I thought, I like this. Then I realized that when I'm drumming, I'm harder to arrest. 
If I'm walking in front of a truck with a drum, you can't really get a grip on me. I'm getting quite good with the rhythms, too. We get asked what we'd do if it was all over. Wouldn't we miss the comradeship? I don't have to worry now that we've got a samba band. We're booked through 2020. We had a gig last week. We've got a gig next month. We'll just pursue our art and keep campaigning to protect our young. Quote, I can't have the future I imagined. Kai Sinclair, Nana Jigglypuff. My mom's quite ill and needs help walking. She wanted to come down here to look around and ask me to come with her. At the end of the day, she went home. And I didn't. I moved into camp a week later. I've been here 14 months now. I'm a photographer, so when I first came down, I thought it would be a good project. But very quickly, I started leaving my camera at home and taking part in the protests myself. Since then, I've explored a lot of different areas of activism. I went straight from being an observer to jumping in at the deep end. It's only recently that I've started to explore the gentler side of protests, and that's why I joined the Nanas. I've got two babysitters, and I want to protect the world for them. Two baby sisters, and I want to protect the world for them. But I've also just worked my arse off for three years finishing my degree. I'd go to college and then I'd come straight here to do a night shift and then I'd go back to college the next day. In 12 years, none of that hard work will matter if the world doesn't exist. I can't have the future I imagined for myself if all this continues. I can't think about having a family. There's no way I'd want to bring more humans into a world that's about to end. I've had talks with some of the security guards at the site and a few of them are against fracking themselves but need to feed their families. They don't want to be there, but they have to do it. We've created a system where people can't risk talking about injustice because they might restrict their freedoms. It's a real risk. Sometimes it seems like it's you against the world, but the past few months have felt a lot more hopeful. The youth strikes have been amazing. Everyone's finding their place with different protests. Quote, I used to be in the police. Tracy Booker, Nana Dancing Queen. I found out about fracking in the summer of 2017. I retired from the civil service in January 2018, so I've been able to spend a lot of time up here. I was a senior executive officer investigating suicides in prisons. Before that, I was a probation officer, and before that, I was a police officer. When I was in that job, I had to work at the miners' strikes, so I understand that the police here can't choose the beat they're on. But I've watched the way they behave, and I hate it. I've been subject to assault by police myself. It astounds me that just because I'm standing at the gate protesting, a police officer feels they have the right to punch me in the breast. I would have, I would have, I would never have got away with anything like that when I was in the job. At first, I wasn't sure if I should tell people that I used to be police, but everyone knows now and it's all has all its benefits, and it has its benefits to some degree. I'm good at helping people out if they get arrested, putting their cases together, and getting Freedom of Information Act requests done. I feel like I'm a useful person to have around. Having a Nana name makes you part of a community. Everyone has to agree to their own and it says something particular about you. 
I got mine when Vivian Westwood came to visit. She came up specifically to dance to Abba's Dancing Queen in the Bellmouth. When she arrived, there wasn't much room for her to dance, and she looked a bit lost. So I just put my arm around her, and she gave me a kiss. Since, I, since I've become an activist, I've done things that I've never dreamed of doing before. I've joined the Samba Band, performed in a play, and been to protest rallies in London and at the Conservative Conference. Activism has given me a different outlook on life and made me feel much more whole in myself. Quote, we aren't typical activists. Joe Catlow Morris, Nana Darling. To be honest, it wasn't the fracking that initially drew me to this place. It was the community, their honesty and their truthfulness and their resolve. I've sympathized with the cause for a long time because I'm in the performing arts. People would always ask me to come down and choreograph a performance or a song at the gates. It was only when I gave up my job as a program leader at a local uni that I was able to get more involved. I started to come to the call for calm on Wednesdays and I spoke a lot to Becky, Tina's niece. She was telling me about taking the field in 2014 and I just said, stop, can I record you? We spoke for about 45 minutes and when I listened back to it, I knew I had to do something with it. Now I've done 11 interviews and created a piece of theater called Nana's with Banners. It's a mix of spoken word, music, and dancing. Our next gig is in Sheffield later this month. The main motivation is to communicate that we aren't typical activists. We are just mothers and sisters and hairdressers and nurses and whatever else. It's about normalizing us and showing our extraordinary nature. When I first did the readings, all the women were in floods of tears. I have a very conservative friend who has no sympathy with what's going on here, but he came to see the play and afterwards said, quote, You've almost turned me. One day I'll come down there with you and meet the Nanas. He hasn't come yet, but if I've done nothing else with these performances, then I have at least changed one person's perspective. And this piece from APnews.com. California Governor Gavin Newsom on Saturday signed a law intended to counter Trump administration plans to increase oil and gas production on protected public land. The measure bars any California leasing authority from allowing pipelines or other gas and oil infrastructure to be built on state property. It makes it difficult for drilling to occur because federally protected areas are adjacent to state-owned land. The law sends a, quote, clear message to President Trump that we will fight to protect these beautiful lands for current and future generations, said Democratic Assemblyman Al Muratsuchi, who introduced it. Ann Alexander, an attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council, praised the law and other environmental measures the governor has signed. Quote, these bills are important steps toward prioritizing California's communities over the oil industry. In a perfect California, we wouldn't be producing or using oil at all, and we hope to get there soon. But in the California we live in now, the governor and the legislature have recognized the need to protect our citizens from the threats that the oil industry poses to our health and environment. And this piece is from TheGuardian.com by Stephanie 
Kirchgeisner. Fires, explosions, and toxic releases. Front range residents fight fracking. Boom. For Barb Binder, the bad news arrived with a knock on the door. That's when she learned from a local activist that a patch of open public space across from her, quote, forever home in Broomfield County, the Denver suburb where she and her husband planned to retire, was about to become an industrial site. Initially, she was comforted by the thought that state officials would not possibly allow residential hydraulic fracturing or fracking as it is known to begin if it was not safe. But two years on, Binder feels native, feels naive for being so trusting. She believes her asthma has become worse since the construction near her home began and blames the drilling mud that has been used on the site. And then there is the constant worry. Quote, I had to educate myself about exactly what's involved in industrial scale fracking, she says. It meant looking at the dangers, the fires, the explosions, the toxic releases, and recognizing Oh my God, I'm going to be living right next to this. Binder now spends most of her free time opposing the plans of extraction oil and gas, the Denver-based company that has plans to construct 84 wells around her neighborhood, 16 of them, quote, literally, she says, in her backyard. She is not alone since the advent of the fracking boom in oil-rich Colorado, where, is that, where there has been a five-fold increase in oil and gas production since 2008, new wells and production sites have sprung up around residential neighborhoods in the, Fort range, in the front range faster than environmental researchers can track them. There are 40,000 active and inactive wells across the Denver Basin, and new permits issued every month for more. They are built close to schools, playgrounds, and clusters of family homes. The boom has coincided with anecdotal tales of ill effects from children's nosebleeds to asthma, and a health study that shows more children being born with congenital heart defects in areas of Colorado with high-intensity oil and gas activity compared with areas where there is a low or no activity. Extraction Oil and Gas told The Guardian it had used new technologies to, quote, minimize the impact of oil and gas development in the Front Range compared with the way oil was extracted in previous decades. A spokesperson said the company had learned some lessons from an incident on its Livingston site after it voluntarily switched a drilling fluid it had been using because residents complained about the odor. It said air monitoring results had found, quote, no health impact from the smell. To date, all published air quality monitoring results have been stellar and conclusively show that any effects of our development on the air we breathe are negligible, the company said. We understand that there will always be those who oppose all oil and gas development whatsoever or want to, quote, leave it in the ground, but we will continue our endeavors to minimize impacts of developing the energy we all use each day and we will never stop innovating for the betterment of Colorado and our state economy. Yet the conflicts between industry and residents and sometimes neighbor versus neighbor have felt in the words of the local reporter Chase Woodruff like a civil war at times. And there have been accidents. In 2017, two men were killed and a woman and child injured after a house in Firestone, Colorado exploded because of a leak of, quote, 
fugitive gas from an uncapped pipeline that was connected to a gas well near the home. Erin Martinez, who lost her husband and brother in the blast, has moved house again after a new well began construction across from her home. Environmental researchers from the nonprofit Earthworks Group travel from site to site in what sometimes seems like a game of whack-a-mole using a special gas-finding imaging camera to track, document, and report what they describe as plumes of pollution that are being emitted from the sites and what they claim is evidence of dangerous releases of methane and other volatile organic compounds that are not visible to the naked eye. Oil companies have claimed that the plumes are not evidence of toxic emissions. The industry has claimed the plumes are a, quote, heat signature caused by high temperature drilling mud. Dozens of complaints have been filed to state authorities, but regulators have deemed that most of those emissions are in the allowable range. One proposal that would have forced oil and gas wells to be located at least 2,500 feet or half a mile from homes and other buildings was voted down on a ballot initiative last year by a vote of 58% to 42% in a significant blow to anti-fracking activists. Oil and gas advocates argue the setback proposal would have decimated their operations in Colorado, in effect barring new drilling from the Denver suburbs where 9 in 10 new wells are being constructed. Colorado Rising, one of the leading activist groups in the state, reportedly raised about $1.2 million to support the initiative, but were outspent when activists say industry sources pumped $41 million into the race. Opponents of fracking have, however, won one big victory since then. Last April, Colorado's new Democratic governor, Jared Polis, signed a new mandate into law that forced one of the state's most powerful institutions, the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, COGCC, to completely upend its mission. Instead of fostering the oil and gas industry, Senate Bill 181 has forced the COGCC to regulate it with a specific priority on public health and safety and focus on the environment. The new law has raised questions about whether a state with deep ties to the fossil fuel industry can ever really change and whether fears about the climate crisis and the ill effects of fracking will ever make a difference. And from the Denver Post by Saja Hindi. Anti-fracking nonprofit Colorado Rising is asking a Denver judge to force the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission to temporarily ban issuing new oil and gas permits until rulemaking is complete. The advocacy group filed a complaint Tuesday in Denver District Court formalizing a long-standing demand by anti-fracking groups to stop all permits while rules are being written. The commission is considering amendments to its rules after Governor Jared Polis signed Senate Bill 19-181, Protect Public Welfare Oil and Gas Operations, a law intended to make sweeping changes to how the oil and gas industry is regulated, including prioritizing public health, safety, and the environment when considering oil and gas development. The COGCC temporarily halted new permits while the commission director, 
wrote guidelines to use while the new regulations are developed. The criteria allow COGCC Director Jeff Robbins to hold up or deny permits based on those 16 guidelines. Although critics say the number of new permits issued is back up to levels before SB 181 was passed, Robbins disputed those claims last month, saying that the number of permits approved for new oil site locations has decreased. Colorado Rising representatives alleged in the complaint that the commission is ignoring the requirements set by law and infringing on residents' due process rights. The complaint also asks, judge, asks a judge to order discovery as outlined in SB 181 once rulemaking is complete, they said. Quote, I'm really sick and tired of the hubris and just the sheer belligerence of the administration in not recognizing that the constitutional rights of the residents is something that is paramount, said former House Rep Joe Salazar, the lead attorney for Colorado Rising at a live-streamed news conference on Wednesday. The commission is using the old rules, which do not make the primary focus health, safety, and welfare, Salazar said. He cited issues residents in Broomfield's Wildgrass subdivision were facing. Quote, I'm trying to do what I believe the legislature told me to do, which is do not put a ban or moratorium on all new gas and oil development and do not give oil and gas development a free ride and a pass from SB 181. Colorado Rising filed the complaint in district court bypassing the commission because it would be, quote, futile to take the issue up with Polis or the commission who have said they wouldn't pause issuing permits. Quote, regarding the claim that the commission must cease all permitting until rules are promulgated, it has repeatedly been stated publicly that the commission will continue to conduct its business under SB 181 while the commission conducts rulemaking. GO, the COGCC said in a statement to the Denver Post. And next up is a piece from dsmogblog.com written by Justin Noble. Two North Dakota gas processing plants in the heart of the Bakken oil fields have shown signs of an eroded safety culture and, started, and startling construction problems, according to Paul Leto, a 54-year-old fo former gas plant operator who has come out as a whistleblower. He described worrisome conditions at the Lonesome Creek plant in Alexander and the Garden Creek plant in Watford City, where desmog recently revealed one of the largest oil and gas industry spills in U.S. history had occurred. Both plants process natural gas brought via pipeline from Backen Wells and are run by the Oklahoma-based oil and gas service company, Oniok Partners. Quote, the safety culture is embarrassing, said Leto, who had described to Desmog the discovery of dozens of loose bolts along critical sections of piping and other improperly set equipment. Deficiencies he attributes to the frenzied rush of the oil boom that has dominated the state's landscape and economy. Quote, North Dakota is basically a petro state, said Leto, who worked at the two plants between 2015 and 2016. There is a regulatory capture, in the, and sure, that happens in other areas, but nowhere is it more extreme than in North Dakota. 
The reason I am coming forward is that while I didn't think Oniok was doing their job, I still trusted the state to regulate and do its job, said Leto. But in reading what the state's response was to the condensate spill, I've lost all confidence that the state is acting as a legitimate regulator. Furthermore, a trove of documents received by DSMOG from the North Dakota Department of Environmental Quality under a public records request has revealed that despite state regulators listing the Garden Creek spill as just 10 gallons from 2015 to 2019, an intense multi-year cleanup operation was underway to remove the spilled natural gas condensate from the grounds of the plant. According to a cleanup document, the ground well beneath the plant became saturated with condensate, so much so that even 18 feet down, a pure gasoline-like odor was detected. Also, groundwater at one monitoring well registered the carcinogen benzene at levels nearly 2,000 times that required by the state health department. DSMOG has also received new information to indicate that the Garden Creek spill, whose size continues to be downplayed in statements to the media by DEQ officials, was indeed officially estimated at 11 million gallons. This puts the release in terms of gallons spilled on par with the infamous 1989 Exxon Valdez oil spill in Alaska and secures Garden Creek a spot as one of the largest industry spills in U.S. history. Oniok has not received any fines from North Dakota regulators for the spill. Quote, 11 million gallons just barely underground but steadily evaporating and lots of benzene, which is really nasty stuff, said Leto, who says Oniok never officially informed him about the spill. It's like working on a healthy on a health time bomb. We are the guinea pigs for the largest condensate spill in U.S. history. I'm glad I got out, but I feel sorry for workers still there. Oniok's spo- spokesperson, Brad Borer, rejected the idea that workers are at risk. Quote, We have performed assessments and sampling for our employees and contractors, including soil vapor analysis and indoor and outdoor air monitoring at the facility. He said. Paul Leto traveled to western North Dakota from Michigan in 2014 looking for work and says within hours of arriving in Boomtown, Watford City, he had found a job working as a shift manager at Cashwise Foods, a local grocery. In April 2015, Oniok hired him to train as an operator at the Garden Creek plant. The gas condensate spill was discovered in July that year. Leto says working as an operator as an operator at Garden Creek was quote just like Homer Simpson running a nuclear power plant. You're sitting in front of a bank of computers being able to optimize the amount of propane, ethane, and butane you're getting out as a product. These fossil fuels are used as feedstocks to produce plastics and petrochemicals, among other things. One of Leto's tasks was to inspect the grounds twice a shift often with an instrument called a sniffer that detects volatile organic compounds, which the EPA says are, quote, of concern as air pollutants and other hydrocarbon emissions. Quote, everywhere I looked, I would get readings, sometimes so hot the equipment would actually shut down, said Leto, whose personal protective equipment, or PPE, included a fire-resistant uniform, hard hat, 
steel toe boots, safety glasses, and earplugs, but no mask or respirator. The Garden Creek facility was literally sitting on a lake of spilled condensate. Borer with Oniok put it differently, quote, the air monitoring assessments have not indicated a need for our plant-based employees and contractors to wear additional PPE, such as respiratory equipment, he said. The condensate release occurred in the subsurface soil and remains in the subsurface until it is recovered using a robust combination of systems. At the Lonesome Creek plant, Leto began as an operator in the fall of 2015. On April 27, 2016, he was using a sniffer to check for leaks along a series of tanks called slug catchers that are used to draw water and other liquids out of the gas stream when he noticed a leak. The cause upon inspection was a set of loose bolts. When Leto checked other bolts on piping in this area, he realized that all of them were loose, dozens in total. Quote, every single bolt that I looked at was loose, and some could be moved with the fingers, which is astonishing, since a light bump could trigger a catastrophic pressurized release, said Leto. Many pipes at gas processing plants in North Dakota are covered with insulation to protect against cold during the harsh winters. Typically, when a plant is being constructed, pipes are put in and bolts are set. Then what is known as a torque team comes in to firmly tighten down all bolts before the insulation is installed. Leto suspects that in the rush to get the plant online and product flowing, the critical stage of tightening the bolts was missed. When asked if loose bolts could have been the cause of the, quote, hairline crack that Oniok says triggered the Gardens Creek spill, Leto replied, yes, a hairline crack would be one thing that could happen when the bolts are not torqued down properly so it is a good hypothesis. Leto conveyed the loose bolt problem to various Oniok managers and filed an internal form meant to convey safety problems on this issue called a near-miss form, but he says the general response was dismissive and the beginning of a trend in which he said in which safety issues he spotted were ignored. Eventually, he quit notifying employers in July 23, 2016 email. Quote, Oniok makes remarkably strong statements and claims about safety, wrote Leto. All I've attempted to do is follow that, but I have the unmistakable impression these efforts were quite annoying or bothersome to others, even as everyone, of course, says safety is a good thing. Every Oniok employee is expected to report safety concerns to their supervisor so that issues can be appropriately addressed. Oniok spokesperson Borer told Diesmog, we have a robust system for reporting safety concerns as outlined in Oniok's, Oniok's Environmental Safety and Health Commitment Code of Business Conduct and Ethics and Whistleblower Policy. Leto said Oniok policies may look good on paper, but are not closely followed. In the resignation letter, he said that Oniok employees scolded him for finding leaks, something he believed as plant operator was his job to do. Quote, I always assumed Oniok wanted to know, he wrote, so I worked hard to find issues. He says that in the time period he was at the plant, other than the series of loose bolts associated with leak he found by the slug catchers, dozens of other loose bolts he discovered were never tightened. I quit, Leto explained to Smog, because I couldn't work at Oniok and be honest.
And this next piece is from ecowatch.com by Tara Lohan. In January 2015, North Dakota experienced one of the worst environmental disasters in its history. A pipeline burst, spilling nearly 3 million gallons of briny saltwater waste from nearby oil drilling operations into two creek beds. The wastewater, which flowed all the way to the Missouri River, contained chloride concentrations high enough to kill any wildlife that encountered it. It wasn't the first such disaster in the state. In 2006, a spill of close to 1 million gallons of fracking wastewater into the Yellowstone River resulted in a mass die-off of fish and plants. Cleanup of that spill was still ongoing at the time of the 2015 spill, nearly a decade later. Spills like these highlight the dangers that come with unconventional fossil fuel extraction techniques that go after hard-to-reach pockets of oil and gas using practices like horizontal drilling and high-volume hydraulic fracturing. But events like these massive spills are just the tip of the iceberg. Other risks to wildlife can be more contained, subtle, or hidden. And while many of the after-effects of fracking have grabbed headlines for years, such as contaminated drinking water, earthquakes, and even flammable faucets, the consequences for wildlife have so far been left out of the national conversation. But those consequences are very real for a vast suite of animals, including mussels, birds, fish, caribou, and even fleas. And they're as varied as the species themselves. In some places, wildlife pays the price when habitat is destroyed. Elsewhere, the damage occurs when water is sucked away or polluted. Still, other species can't take the traffic, noise, and dust that accompany extraction operations. All this damage makes sense when you think about fracking's outsized footprint. It starts with the land cleared for the well pad followed by sucking large volumes of water between 1.5 and 16 million gallons per well out of rivers, streams, or groundwater. Then there's the sand that's mined for use during the fracturing of underground rock to release natural gas or oil. There are also new pipelines, compressor stations, and other related infrastructure that need to be constructed. And there's the truck traffic that surges during operations or the disposal of fracking wastewater either in streams or underground. The cumulative footprint of a single new well can be as large as 30 acres. In places where hundreds of thousands of wells spring up across a landscape, it's easy to imagine the toll on wildlife and even cases with ecosystem-wide implications. Quote, Studies show that there are multiple pathways to wildlife being harmed, said ecologist Sandra Steingraber, a distinguished scholar in residence at Ithaca College who has worked for a decade compiling research on the health effects of fracking. Biodiversity is a determinant of public health. Without these wild animals doing ecosystem services for us, we can't survive. The most obvious threats fracking poses to wildlife comes in the form of habitat loss. As rural areas become industrialized with each new well pad and its associated infrastructure, vital habitat for wildlife is altered or destroyed. 
and it's not just the area containing the well. The land or water just outside of the operation, known as edge habitat, also degrades with an increase in the spread of invasive plant species, among other concerns. And large-scale developments such as miles-long pipelines can change the way species move and hunt, often resulting in an increase in predation. Doyle and gas development in Alberta, Canada, for example, created, quote, wolf highways that gave the predators easy access to an endangered herd of woodland caribou. Roads and other kind of fragmentation can be particularly dangerous for wildlife. A single fracked well can be responsible for 3,300 one-way truck trips during its operational lifespan, and each journey can injure or kill wildlife large and small. After all, it's hard to get out of the way of a tanker truck carrying 80,000 pounds of sand. And then there's the big picture. Drilling within large core forest areas, previously located far from human development, can be permanently detrimental for species such as migratory songbirds. In one study published in Biological Conservation in 2016, researchers examined the effects of unconventional gas drilling on forest habitats and populations of birds in an area of West Virginia overlaying the Marcellus and Utica shales. The area has been at the center of the shale gas boom, with the number of unconventional wells in central Appalachia jumping from 111 in 2005 to 14,022 by the end of 2015. The study found that shale gas development there during that period resulted in a 12.4% loss of core forest and increased edge habitat by more than 50%, and that in turn changed the communities of birds found in the forest. In areas near well pads experienced area, the areas near well pads experienced an overall decline in quote forest specialists, birds that prefer interior forest habitat. Among them, the hooded warbler and Kentucky warbler, which are of high conservation priority, as well as cerulean warblers. These sky-blue endangered migratory songbirds have been dropping in numbers for decades. But researchers noted that the decline was 15% higher in their study area than in the greater Appalachian Mountains region during the same period. Quote, for migratory songbirds, large blocks of forest are very important, explains Margaret C. Brittingham, a professor of wildlife resources at Penn State University who has studied the effects of fracking on wildlife. The birds do best in interior forest habitat with mature trees. They also serve as an important part of the forest ecosystem, helping to prevent or suppress insect outbreaks that can damage trees. They're co-evolved with the forest, feeding on insects and keeping those forests healthy, she said. Not all species declined in numbers from fracking development. The study found an increase in the kinds of birds that do well among humans and in developed areas, habitat generalists, such as the American robin, blue jay, and brown-headed cowbird, the latter of which are notorious brood parasites that leave their eggs in nests of other birds. Quote, I think the most alarming thing about all of this is what bird declines may indicate about the declining health of overall ecosystems, said Laura Farwell, a postdoctoral research associate in the Department of Forest and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, 
and the lead author of the biological conservation study. I know it's a cliche, but forest interior birds truly are canaries in the coal mine for Appalachian forests experiencing rapid loss and fragmentation. Farwell adds that many other kinds of development contribute to habitat loss that result in biodiversity declines. Fracking is one more added pressure, but the consequences are quite significant. Quote, it just happens to be disproportionately affecting some of the largest remaining areas of undisturbed mature forests left in the eastern U.S., and these forests are incredibly valuable for biodiversity, she said. Out west, the industry is carving up a different kind of habitat, and that has other species on the ropes. Greater sage-grouse, for example, depend on large home ranges composed of intact areas of sagebrush. Cattle ranching and development of all kinds have pushed the grouse near extinction, and continued unbridled oil and gas extraction in its remaining habitat could tip it over the edge. A 2014 study co-authored by Brittingham found that oil and gas infrastructure and related disturbances to sage-grouse can cause the bird's population to decline or even disappear in areas with particularly high levels of oil and glass devel gas development. Sage-grouse have also been shown to exhibit high levels of stress from noise. Noise poses additional risk for birds that depend on their hearing. A study published in Biological Conservation in 2016 found that noise from compressor stations which run 24 hours a day, reduced the ability of northern sawwet owls to catch prey. The researchers found that for owls and other acoustically specialized predators, noise can cause significant negative impacts on behavior, like a decreased ability to hunt, and that can ripple through the ecosystem. Light, too, can be a problem. Oil and gas operations in some places have turned once dark rural areas into blazing mini-cities in quick time. A 2012 photo revealed that gas burned off from wells in North Dakota's Back and Shale was so bright it was visible from space, something not seen just six years before. Light pollution like this can be deadly for migratory birds and disrupt other nocturnal animals. It's in the water. The fracking process uses a lot of water, and much of that contaminated water returns to the surface, bringing with it heavy metals, radioactivity, toxic chemicals, many of which are industry trade secrets, and high levels of salinity. Disposing of all that wastewater has created headaches for the industry, and in some cases it is now proving to endanger wildlife. Spills or intentional dumping of wastewater or fracking fluid released 180 million gallons into the environment between 2009 and 2014, according to an investigation by the Associated Press. Unsafe levels of some contaminants have been found to persist for years, as was the case in North Dakota. Not all spills and intentional releases of wastewater in streams create noticeable impacts like fish going belly up. Some are more subtle and harder to see, but they may still take a real toll on aquatic life. A 2019 study in Ecotoxicology and Environmental Safety looked at what happens when insects called water fleas encounter a fracking fluid spill. Researchers found that even when the fluids were diluted in a stream, their high salinity could decrease insect mobility and survival. 
Canadian province of Alberta, the researchers noted, has recorded 100 such large volume spills. Lonely water fleas, in this case a species called Daphnia magna, may not seem like animals we should worry about, but like so many small creatures, they occupy an important niche. Quote, they are the basis of the freshwater ecosystem, Steingraber explained. When the water fleas are gone, the guys that feed on them are gone. Frogs and fish die, and those that feed on them die, and suddenly you have a biodiversity problem because you've knocked out a species at the bottom of the aquatic food chain. Some of this may already be playing out in other locations. 2016 study published in Ecotoxicology that found a decrease in biodiversity of macroinvertebrates in Pennsylvania streams where fracking was occurring in the watershed. And even worse, no fish or no fish diversity at streams with documented frack water fluid spills. In some cases, streams that once contained large numbers of brook trout had none left. The researchers concluded that fracking has the potential to alter aquatic biodiversity at the base of food webs. Elsewhere, it's possible that contamination of surface waters has already taken a toll on the Louisiana water thrush, a bird that breeds along forest headwater streams and feeds on macroinvertebrates. A 2015 study published in Ecosphere found that the shale gas development had negative effects on the nest survival and productivity of water thrushes, and researchers posited that, quote, Indirect effects on stream and terrestrial food webs from possible contamination by the oil and gas industry could be to blame. The research, which looked at sites in both the Marcellus and Fayetteville shale regions, showed that the bird's feathers contained elevated levels of barium and strontium, two heavy metals associated with the drilling process, in areas where fracking had taken place. Much like when lead shows up in a human's hair, the presence of these metals in the bird's feathers is a sign that contaminants in the environment are making their way into animals' bodies. And that raises even bigger concerns. As the researchers concluded in their paper, quote, Our finding of significant, significantly higher levels of barium and strontium also suggests the possibility of surface water contamination by any of the hundreds of chemicals that may be used in hydraulic fracturing, including friction reducers, acids, biocides, corrosion and scale inhibitors, pH-adjusting agents, and surfacants. A similar line of inquiry is being pursued by other researchers. Nathaniel Warner, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Penn State University, has begun using the shells of freshwater mussels to read the changes in water chemistry in Pennsylvania's Allegheny River. Mussels record environmental conditions in their shells each year, much like tree rings. Warner and his colleagues have also found elevated levels of strontium in the shells of mussels living downstream from a site where treated fracking wastewater was discharged. Strontium, which is found in high concentrations in oil and gas wastewaters, is a naturally occurring metal with some medical benefits, but which in large exposures can cause bone loss and other side effects. But Warner says they are still trying to determine what the impacts are for mussels in aquatic ecosystems, not to mention the people who get their dinner from the river. Quote, 
We have not really gotten to the point where we can say this is harmful or not, he said. We really focused on the hard shell itself, but now we're looking more at what happens in that soft tissue because muskrats and fish don't really eat the shell that much, but they eat the soft tissue. And so what levels of contaminants or pollution ended up in that soft tissue compared to the shell? He said that's probably more important for determining what is really what this really means for wildlife or even human health. University of Wisconsin's Farwell says that she'd also like to see more research on what the accumulation of contaminants in the bodies of water thrushes means for other wildlife and for humans. Quote, Air pollution is another important issue to consider, she added. I'm not aware of any current studies that have looked directly at impacts of fracking air pollution on wildlife. You can add these topics to the long list researchers are hoping to explore, but there will still be a lot about how fracking and other extraction techniques are affecting wildlife that we don't know. And with natural gas still projected to be one of the fastest growing energy sources in the United States, the time to understand its impacts on wildlife grows short. Quote, the industry boomed at such a rapid pace, researchers and policymakers could barely keep up, she said. And in most cases, we don't have baseline data and impacted sites to compare with current numbers. Unfortunately, most of us studying fracking impacts have been playing a game of catch-up since the beginning. And this next story is by Andy Rowell and is published on EcoWatch. As U.S. shale industry comes under increasing scrutiny for its environmental and health impact, it has emerged that the U.S. has approved fracking offshore, leading to billions of gallons of wastewater to be dumped at sea. The Center for Biological Diversity has released federal documents that reveal that officials approved more than 1,200 offshore fracks in 630 different wells in the four years from 2010 to 2014 in the Gulf of Mexico. The Gulf of Mexico has already been suffering from decades of conventional oil and gas drilling, as well as the aftermath of the devastating Deepwater Horizon blowout in 2010, when millions of gallons of oil were spilt. The newly released documents reveal that fracking occurred off the coasts of Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama with no public involvement and with no site-specific tests undertaken beforehand. In so doing, the industry was allowed to dump a staggering 76 billion gallons of waste fluid into the sea in 2014 alone. There is real reason to be worried by this dumping. Over the last 18 months, there has been growing concern about fracking chemicals contained within fracking wastewater. Just over a year ago, the UK-based Chem Trust issued a report and briefing paper on how toxic chemicals from fracking could affect wildlife and people. The report identified specific examples of hazardous materials used in fracking, including chemicals, quote, associated with leukemia in humans and toxic to sperm production in males. The trust warned it is, quote, particularly concerned about the use of hormone-disrupting chemicals, commonly known as endocrine-disrupting chemicals. 
And then last October, new research found that fracking chemicals are linked with a decreased sperm count in adulthood. Finally, in April this year, a new scientific study found high levels of 16 endocrine disruptors in samples taken near a fracking site. And now it seems fracking wastewater has been dumped at sea without anyone's knowledge or oversight. Quote, fracking has largely been in a shroud of secrecy. Miyoko Sakashida, the ocean's director at Center for Biological Diversity said, before adding, it is a dangerous activity that has no place in our oceans or the Gulf of Mexico. According to Sakashida, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, quote, didn't really know what chemicals and still doesn't know what chemicals are being discharged into the Gulf of Mexico, which is a damning verdict on the U.S. regulator. When I first called EPA, they basically responded to me that they don't keep track of wastewater dumping and they don't know, Sakashita said. The Obama administration is essentially letting oil companies frack at will in Gulf ecosystems and dump billions of gallons of oil waste into coastal waters, adds Kristen Monsell, a Center for Biological Diversity attorney. Every offshore frack increases the risk to wildlife and coastal communities, yet federal officials have been just rubber stamping this toxic practice in the Gulf of Mexico for years. The lawyer added that the U.S. government, quote, hasn't really studied it before. They haven't studied the impact of the chemicals that these companies are allowed to dump directly into the ocean, including critical habitat and fracking endangered species. And as noted by the reference to the Obama administration, that report is three years old. That report is from July 11. 2016, this, uh, the problems and the issues of pollution from fracking are not new ones. They're not connected to a single administration. They are long-term and there's plenty of blame to politicians to go around. And finally, here's a piece from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette you can find this at post-gazette.com. This is written by Don Hopi. Grant Township, a tiny rolling swath of rural Indiana County, doesn't trust the State Department of Environmental Protection to protect the water wells of its 700 residents. That much was clear at Friday's Commonwealth Court hearing in Pittsburgh, where the DEP sought dismissal of the township's challenge to a state permit that will allow a shale gas wastewater injection well to operate in the community. The long-running legal battle, which is being watched statewide for its potential precedent-setting outcome, pits the township, which wants to protect water wells from contamination, against the DEP, which approved a permit for the injection well in 2014 and again in 2017. Quote, We're trying to protect our constituents' water, from toxic waste produced by the shale gas drilling industry, said John Perry, a township supervisor, speaking at an impromptu news conference following the hearing. We're fighting tooth and nail to keep the poisonous water out of our township. There is no plan B. The township objected when Pennsylvania General, Elect when Pennsylvania General Energy Company 
proposed converting one of its former shale gas production wells to a 7,500-foot-deep injection well for the disposal of liquid drilling and fracking waste from other gas well drilling sites. Similar plans for disposal wells have met strong opposition elsewhere in Pennsylvania and Ohio, where residents depend on private well water, and about 50 supporters packed the courtroom for the hearing, including several from the gas fields of eastern Ohio. The injection wells pump water laden with salt, chemicals, and metals into gas voids below the shallow aquifers tapped by residential water wells. The practice has caused minor earthquakes in Ohio, Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas, and Colorado. Grant Township supervisors approved a Community Bill of Rights ordinance in 2014 to attempt to block the injection well, prompting PG&E prompting PGE to file a federal lawsuit that was decided in favor of the company but is being appealed. In 2015, the township adopted its home rule charter by overwhelming popular vote. The DEP sued the township and the township filed counterclaims seeking a declaration that its charter is valid law under the state's environmental rights amendment. DEP attorney Richard Watling declined to comment after the hearing but told the court that the township should have enacted a zoning ordinance to regulate where wastewater injection wells could operate, not a home rule charter. Quote, This is de facto zoning and it's unlawful. Mr. Watling told the judges, referring to the charter. The Commonwealth is not against the township fulfilling its duties. This is just not, not the right way to do it. But Karen Hoffman, an attorney representing Grant Township, called the zoning issue a, quote, red herring, and said the second-class township has the authority under the police powers of its home rule charter to protect the health, safety, and welfare of its residents. Quote, the DEP doesn't know what's in the drilling and fracking wastewater, so how can it protect Grant Township, Ms. Hoffman said. The DEP is falling down on its duty to protect the residents of Pennsylvania. She said Pittsburgh has exercised its authority under its home rule charter to ban shale gas fracking wells, and the township, quote, has the same authority to enact this kind of law. A federal appellate court hearing scheduled for Friday in Philadelphia was postponed. In that case, Grant Township is appealing a court ruling toward awarding PGE more than $102,000 in attorney fees. Township officials say the ruling would bankrupt the municipality, which has an annual revenues of approximately $150,000 and operating expenses of about $140,000. Ms. Hoffman said the federal lawsuit by PGE challenged the old 2014 Township Ordinance and is separate from the township's challenge to DEP's permitting authority. The township's home rule charter is still in place and it's good law, Ms. Hoffman said. Nationwide, there are about 30,000 deep injection wells used for drilling wastewater disposal, handling about 2 billion gallons a day. Ohio has about 200. West Virginia has 65. Oklahoma, about 4,000. And Texas, about 12,000. Because of Pennsylvania's geology, only about a dozen injection wells have been permitted in the state, but there is pressure from the drilling industry to permit more. Quote, a lot of municipalities are watching this case, said Stacy Long, a Grant Township supervisor. 
Everyone in Pennsylvania is watching because the DEP keeps cramming these harmful wastes into our backyards, and that's not a remedy. The waste contains radioactive material and unknown chemicals. The regulations are failing our people. And that'll wrap up this episode of Frack You Very Much. Remember, you can go to frackyouverymuch.com. Check out all the back episodes there. You can also follow on Twitter at FYVM Show. And from the album by this fracking album, this is Mike and Ruthie with Drill on the Horizon. Thanks for listening. Drill on the horizon, my water tastes like hell. Gas man says it's safe to drink, but he won't drink it himself, no. Yeah.